All right, let me just tweet this out and then we will get started. All right, so I think we're going to do this one audio only tonight. I uh, have been beta testing the uh, video feature on Colin uh, lately, but uh, this one uh, you're just going to have to uh, survive on my milky melodic voice instead of uh, of getting to look at me. Uh, so I was thinking about this tonight because I just uh, finished earlier this week writing uh, my essay for a collection that uh, Matt McManus and uh, Conrad Hamilton are editing called Flowers for Marx. And uh, so I very unsurprisingly to anybody who's been kind of following what I've been up to uh, for the last, you know, while uh, said I wanted to write something about analytical Marxism and uh, particularly about uh, G.A. Cohen uh, and so the paper is, is pretty long. It's like 8,000 words and it goes over a bunch of different aspects of things that people might mean by analytic or analytical Marxism and, um, sort of using Cohen's work specifically to highlight that. But, uh, I want to specifically hone in on the part of the paper that's most directly about Marx's theory of history and kind of try to draw out a little bit at the end uh, some of the political implications, right? So in other words, there's the kind of abstract theoretical question, which is, okay, what's the best way to interpret Marx's theory of history? And there I do think Cohen's uh, interpretation in his book, Karl Marx's Theory of History, is pretty faithful uh, to uh, to the source material. Um, and then, okay, well, given sort of debates that have happened since that book came out, how much of this how much of this holds up, right? So once you've sort of answered the what does Mark say question, then the next question is, you know, is that true? Uh, and And then, you know, when it comes to at least the part of it that I think most unambiguously holds up, um, in other words, some of the debates on this I'm not necessarily going to take a stand on, but uh, when it you know when it comes to the the parts that I think it's uh, are the most sort of robustly defensible, why what are the senses in which this could be politically interested or important in terms of debates that might go on on the left uh, today? Okay, so uh, the key text as far as what Marx thinks about all this is the his eighteen fifty nine preface. Uh, to the critique of political economy, where Marx says this, quote, in the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations, which are independent of their will, namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production. So there are relations of production, and the ones that men enter into 
are the ones that are appropriate to a given stage in the development of the material forces of production. And so the forces are about the capacity of society to produce stuff, uh, those exchanges with nature that Marx likes to talk about that uh, by which human beings, you know, get the use values that we need in order to keep on existing. And then the relations of production are the social structures that um, have to do with how production is working. So we'll unpack both of those more in a minute, but uh, Marx goes on to write, the totality of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which corresponds definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but the social existence that determines their consciousness. At a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms with the property relations within the framework of which they have operated hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the changes of the whole immense superstructure. Okay, end quote. So this is, on one level, a theory about how society works in any given time slice of its development, where men... Um, I'll just continue to use the original sexist language where men have entered into a given set of, quote, definite relations, unquote, as, for example, lords or serfs or capitalists and proletarians, and where their political life reflects these relations. We can call that part of Marx's theory, that part of Marx's theory of history, his theory of the stages of history, right? In other words, he's got a theory of you know, he's got an analysis of how feudalism works, an analysis of how capitalism works, an analysis of how socialism would work. That's his theory of the stages of history. At another level, it's a theory of historical change, of how different modes of production arise and replace each other over time. So on the first level, the stages of history level, Cohen notes that uh, Marx's frequent talk of modes of production has to be handled with some care because the term is multiply ambiguous and Marx himself uses it in different senses in different passages. So this is a quote from Cohen. He says, a mode of production is a way of producing, but there are many ways of differentiating ways. My way of walking may differ from yours because I take another route or swing my legs differently or tend as you do not to stop, look, and listen. Way of cooking, I like this part, may refer to the ingredients used to fry it as opposed to boiling, to Greek rather than Italian, and so on. He who would identify social forms by their modes or ways of producing must indicate the dimensions to which the relevant ways belong. So Cohen identifies two distinct senses in which Marx sometimes used the phrase, um, which are the material mode of production and the social mode of production. He also talks about the mixed mode, um, which, uh, but that one just sort of comes out of the first two. The, when Marx talks about the mix, you know, well, when Cohen these are all Cohen's terms where he's describing Marx. And he says, okay, we can look at different places where Marx uses this phrase mode of production. And sometimes he seems to be talking about the material mode of production. Sometimes he talks about the social mode of production. Sometimes he's talking about a mixture of the two, but we'll pretty much focus on, uh, 
on the uh, on the first two senses. So the material mode of production refers to the ways in which human beings interface with nature in order to meet their needs. So that a society where large groups of people work together to sow and harvest uh, crops in a cooperative fashion using tractors and similar technology might be said to have the same material, quote, mode of production, unquote, regardless of what class arrangements accompany this. So, for example, a collective farm in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in you know, 1975 and a corporate farm in Iowa in 1975 may have been characterized by the same material mode of production. If time travelers introduced exactly the same technology and logistics to a feudal estate in medieval France, then very briefly until this technological revolution destabilized the relations of production, that estate would have the same material mode of production, even though its social mode of production was feudalism. Okay, so that's the material mode of production. That's just like how production is actually operating in this society. But another sense in which Marx uses the phrase modes of production is social modes. So the social mode of production is the respect in which uh, the three different societies just mentioned, that would be Soviet state socialism, American corporate capitalism, and medieval European feudalism, have different, you know, even though in our example they all have the same material mode of production, they all have different social modes of production. So in medieval feudalism and ancient slave society is no less than the modern capitalist ones. The immediate producers are exploited by a dominant class, but they're exploited in very different ways due to the very different ownership relations, which tend to predominate in whatever mixture of relations characterize any particular social mode of production. The slave owns neither himself nor his means of production. Um, worth noting that Marx, when Marx talks about forces of production, that incorporates both human labor power and something called the means of production, by which Marx means the non-human means of production. So the slave owns neither himself nor his means of production. The proletarian, at least at a first pass, owns himself but not his means of production. The serf has partial but importantly incomplete rights to both himself and his means of production, so that depending on the particular form of feudalism under which he labors. He may be forced to spend some of his time working the Lord's land instead of his own little plot of land, or he may work a single plot, but be forced to give up some of the crops to the Lord's men. But in all three cases, uh, slavery, serfdom, capitalism, the immediate producer keeps part of the proceeds of his labor. So Marx points out in Capital, that even in the slave's case, some small part of what he produces is equivalent to what he would have had to produce anyway to um, to uh, reproduce his means of subsistence. Uh, so it's equivalent to what his owner expends on slaves' food and shelter. So that part of his product, the slave keeps. But in any of these three systems, the slave, the slave, the serf, the proletarian is forced to surrender another part of what they're producing to their exploiter. So in the case of feudalism, this appropriation happens right out of the open. Refuse to spend the required number of weeks working the Lord's land or to surrender the required tribute of crops, and you're likely to meet the sharp end of a sword. Under capitalism, this direct extraction is replaced by the what Marx calls somewhere the dull compulsion of economic necessity. If uh, you don't want to work, you can have fun living on the edges of society, or if we're talking about a really early version of capitalism where workers haven't achieved a sort of welfare state, you can just fucking die. Um, 
I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, I think, here in terms of how I presented it in the paper, just because I do want to be able to uh, to take, um, you know, maybe one or two calls, although we are going to have to keep this to a pretty tight half an hour tonight, um, my schedule after this. But, um, but yeah, I'm going to, I'll go back to it if I have time later, but I'm going to skip uh, the sort of complication Cohen introduces about whether it's really quite true in all cases. <laughs> That the proletariat owns uh, himself, but not his means of production, and um, then go back to the sort of general picture that Marx lays out in the 1859 preface. Right, remember, Marx there says um, the mode, um, the totality of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which corresponds definite forms of social consciousness. Right? So the, the relations of production, the real foundation of society, the legal and political institutions are built on top of that. And then Marx says, um, the, uh, at a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework to which they have operated hitherto. Uh, and there, there's a, there's a little puzzle here that about how to make sense of this. Cause if you're going to say that uh, the given um, set of, you know, that like, if you have this picture that as the forces of production develop, the relations of production become a fetter and they have to be thrown off and replaced by new ones. And once you've got your relations of production in place, then you have this legal and political superstructure that rises on top of it. Then there's this question about, well, hold on, isn't the legal and political superstructure um, a, isn't that like, if you're saying that that's the superstructure, it's another structure built on top of the basic structure of the class relations of society, well, hold up, though. Aren't those class relations, those relations of production, ultimately legal relationships? Because we're talking about ownership. Ownership is a legal category, right? Who owns the means of production? So it looks like you're saying, you know, your Marx wants to differentiate these two different levels and say that one is more basic than the other, but it looks like they're inextricably entangled. So, you know, what's going on there? And uh, Cohen's answer to this is basically to um, to say um, that um, well there's a difference between effective control and legal ownership right that the class relations are really defined in terms of effective control so convenient illustration is the destruction of the feudal guild system in which a strictly limited number of apprentices could work under a given guild master in a particular workshop Modern factories were made impossible by such rules, just as the mass migration of peasants legally bound to their estates to work in factories was supposed to be made impossible by the laws that go into the feudal superstructure. In both cases, a significant part of the transition uh, was supposed to be made impossible by the laws of the uh, feudal superstructure. Right, So a significant part of the transition was accomplished by the mass flouting of the law at the level of effective control before the relations of legal ownership were then forced to adjust themselves. And that point brings us to, to Cohen's explication of defense 
of Marx's theory of historical transition, which is really where I wanted to go here. Marx's formulation of the preface gives unambiguous priority to the material productive forces of society, as Marx's phrase, over the social relations of production, and then to the social relations of production over the immense superstructure. And all that sounds to many contemporary ears like, quote, technological determinism, unquote. And technological determinism, whatever that is, is supposed to be something that many latter-day Marxists seem to want to avoid. And an easy way to avoid it is to run away from Marx's priority claim in favor of hand-waving about each of these elements, giving rise to all the others in a sort of vaguely described and hard-to-falsify dialectical mixture. Um, Cohen defends the, straightforwardly defends the priority claims. Um, and and I want to think, um, you know, might do like a part two of this, maybe even tomorrow. Um, so, you know, but right now, what I want to just say is this. There's a lot that you could say about how transitions work and how the senses in which these two different priority claims might be true. Um, and Cohen has a lot of interesting things to say about it. But what I ultimately want to suggest is that the priority claim actually splits up into two parts. Uh, and this is not an original formulation to me. I might be mangling it a little bit, but I think I originally heard this from uh, Jonas Teal. Uh, so there's an upward constraint for the forces to the relations and a sort of downward one. So the upward, you know, the sort of upward pri priority claim is that the forces of production having developed to a certain point makes it like impossible to keep the relations the way that they are. And this is the part that I think has actually become the most controversial. There's something called the Brenner debate, which we're really not going to get into tonight, but is this huge, complicated historical debate um, about how the transition from uh, feudalism to capitalism happened originally in England, where Brenner's claim is that this is much more sort of local and contingent than the sort of very orthodox version of Marx's theory of history defended by Cohen would make it sound that it's not really that the development of the forces to a certain level made it inevitable. It was, there was a lot of like sort of weird historical happenstance that happened there. And certainly when it comes to, um, when it comes to the transition from capitalism to socialism, you say, well, is there really anything about the development of the productive forces that makes that inevitable? And you might really question that. But then there's the downward version, which is not so much um, there's the development of the forces at the bottom level makes the um, makes the uh, change in the relations inevitable, but just or even inevitable in that sort of quasi way that you know, like oh, it's either that or the common ruin of the contending classes, if you know your Marx nerdery. But um, it's that at the very least that the level of development of the productive forces constrains which, uh, which sets of social relations are even possible. So I want to just really quickly, before I take, I've uh, got to see we've got a call, before I take the call, right, let's just, um, let's just real quickly um, think about this a little bit, right? So um, framed purely in terms of the downward constraint, the priority claim, you know, so-called technological determinism, 
uh, could be expressed like this. Early hunter-gatherer societies were egalitarian by necessity. There wasn't enough to go around to support a ruling class that didn't hunter-gather. The agricultural revolution created the possibility of the separation of such a class from the immediate producers, but only if those immediate producers were directly and violently coerced to surrender a part of the product to their labor. The development of modern industry, in turn, created the possibility of a different kind of extraction, in which immediate producers are, in Marx's acid phrase, doubly free, free to make a contract with any capitalist will have them, but also free from any other means of supporting themselves. And the hyper-development of the productive forces under capitalism finally provided a sufficient level of abundance to create the possibility of a far better kind of egalitarianism that would simply collapse backward into direct extraction. So translated a point made by Cohen in one of the extra chapters of the 2000 edition of Karl Marx's Theory of History into the language the distinction is, I've just made it, upward and downward versions of the priority claim. The fall of the Soviet Union, which is widely understood as a falsification of Marxism, was a vindication of at least the downward constraint half of the theory. While nearly all Marxists would, of course, have preferred an economically viable and politically desirable version of socialism to have merged in the USSR, to the cold comfort of having our theory confirmed, a flourish in socialism emerging at such a low level of development of the productive forces would have actually dramatically disconfirmed that theory. This point is given a book-length explication by one of Cohen's students, uh, who's also in the uh, who's also listening to this uh, this episode, uh, Steve Paxton. Um, that's the book is Unlearning Marx, and understanding this point, and this is what I want to end on before I take the call, is. Uh, not merely relevant to rearguard debates with the few remaining Stalinist or Maoist dead-enders who think that such a leapfrogging between uh, modes of production would have been possible, but to cutting-edge debates with allegedly socialist degrowthers who think that the solution to global climate change is not a green technological revolution, but consciously rolling back the global productive forces. And that part, sadly, is not a rearguard action. Such people make up a disturbingly substantial proportion of the contemporary socialist intelligentsia. Uh, see, for example, what I would regard as the wildly uh, dystopian return to the land vision of universal farming, planned rewilding of much of the rest of the surface of the planet, and universal veganism promoted in a recent book called Half Earth Socialism. You can listen to a recent episode of Doug Hedwood's show to watch him arguing with the authors of that. Uh, and I think understanding at least the sort of more clearly defensible downward constraint version of Marx's claim that the forces are more uh, basic than the relations, I think helps you understand what's wrong with that. That, you know, that the you need material abundance as the foundation of socialism. This is actually a really core insight of historical materialism. And with that, I'm going to go for the last few minutes of the episode to talk to Strom. All right, Strom, you got to, uh, just as a reminder, you got to unmute yourself. Oh, man, it took me a second. Um, oh, um, the question I had was, what do you think of the opinion espoused by scholars yes. mm -hmm. like David Carlton and Peter Kuklanis that the West Indian slave societies, Dixie, Brazil, pre-revolutionary Haiti, and so on, were full of capitalist ones. Um, some people have 
uh, pushed back and told me that because uh, the labor forces, the primary source of labor power in these societies were not proletarians. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting that these question. Not I actually remember having a bit about this. I tend to go along year, with the Carlton uh, and Kuklanis um, assessment of them as fully capitalist that, societies. So uh, just, you know, I just I mean, wanted I to know what you thought. Of them as fully capitalist is like if you are a plantation owner in like pre-revolutionary Haiti and you're, you know, you're uh, uh, overseeing the production of sugar cane to sell on the world market. It's sort of, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're the immediate producers you're exploiting aren't proletarians, they're slaves, but from your perspective, they sort of might as well be uh, because uh, they're uh, uh, like your, um, like your sort of relationship to the world market is the same as it would be if you were just like a regular capitalist. Uh, but probably the best case, you know, then the best case against it is just to say, well, look, if you're going to talk, go with that distinction and, you know, this go with that distinction that we made earlier uh, between the social mode of production and the material mode of production, that the, so if the social mode of production is defined by, who the immediate producers are and how they're related to the exploiting class, then yeah, it looks like Haiti, you know, pre-revolutionary Haiti or antebellum Dixie are not of uh, capitalist societies. They're this other thing because they've got this other social mode of production. Uh, so who's, you know, cause, cause that's, again, they're not, they're not proletariat, you know, they're not in a, in a proletarian, you know, capitalist relation. They're in a slave slave owner relation. Um, just like, a, you know, just like, you know, ancient Roman slaves is as different as those systems were. Um, who's right about this? I'm not, I mean, I think that in a certain way, it just depends how you want to define your terms. I'm not, I'm, I think this might be a purely semantic dispute because, um, I, I think part of the problem is, well, if you're just taking like pre-revolutionary Haiti, for example, as as the as the unit of analysis you're saying is this society a capitalist society or not there's a really good case for no it's not but then the question is should you take that as the unit of analysis or should you say like this is um you know this is uh you know you should be asking whether like the world economy in 1790 whatever was uh uh, was a capitalist world economy or not? And if the answer to that is yes, and it might be a little early, but whatever, let's, let's say, let's say it's yes, right? If the answer is yes, uh, then, um, then say, okay, well, this is, uh, this is, a a little, a little bit of non-capitalist ownership relations going on within a capitalist society. I mean, you could, you know, it would be like saying if the, the state prison down the street, um, is, uh, you know, like the, the sort of labor relationships that are going on there aren't capitalist exactly. But does that mean that the, that the state prison is a, is a non-capitalist society? No, it's a, it's a state prison that exists within a, cap, a capitalist society. And maybe that's the right answer about Haiti and Dixie too. I don't know. What do you, you know, what are your thoughts?
ICMS exactly. These were industrial operations fully involved in commodity production. I mean, in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that makes, is I think the that makes sense. Test, if, uh, that is, if that is the metric I, we are I going by. Like a really um, I think uh, question, the only thing to do uh, is to classify <laughs> them as uh, capitalist societies. About, um, how to think about, you know, the sort of so-called actually existing societies and the 20th, you know, actually existed socialist societies in the 20th century, which were integrated to a certain extent, but much less so into world capitalism. But that might have to be a discussion for another day. I know we've got another couple of other callers in the queue, uh, and I'm going to have to say with apologies to them, uh, I I am going to have to, uh, I am going to have to get going, but um, I will do, um, I will do like a part two to this. Uh, tomorrow uh and so if you want to uh if uh yeah if you want to uh, if you, i really appreciate the calls if you want to call it at the beginning of tomorrow i am very happy to take those other calls right at the beginning of the call in tomorrow and we'll pick up right here exactly on this exact subject so i will uh i'll talk to people um yeah uh i will um i'll talk to people uh to uh tomorrow night um when uh when i do that uh we're uh we want to go talk um you know i do want to go back to some of the stuff i had to like kind of skip past a little bit uh tonight in terms of thinking about the uh you know thinking about the both the first half of what i'm calling like if you say marx has a theory of the stages of history and a theory of historical transition Right, you want to call those Marx's theories of history. I gave the, um, even though it's what I was just chatting about with with Strom, you know, I, I gave the the first half, the the theory of the stages of history, slightly short shrift uh, tonight. Uh, but uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, and I want to also talk a little bit more about some of what Cohen says about his um, the theory of historical transition. But we will uh, we will do all of that tomorrow. Uh, really appreciate everybody who listened in, and again the people who called in. I promise, if you uh, if you do uh, if you do come in at the uh, at the beginning of um, at the beginning of the uh, the conversation uh, tomorrow, I will. Uh, I think I, I think I can remember the names. I know one of them was Crunchy. That's easy to remember. So I will uh, I will take those at the beginning of uh, the uh, of the discussion uh, tomorrow. And with that, I am going.